I kind of got hooked on like the whole idea of figures. It was so many things. It was tiring. It was thrilling. It was exciting. I may or may not have broken a few traffic laws on the way to get there. And we were driving through a blizzard. I think the visibility was like 20 or 30 meters ahead of us. It was so bad. It was such an adventure. And I'm so glad I did it. And a hearty welcome to episode 11 of the Big Year Podcast. I'm Robert Bolmander. Glad I remembered my name. And I'm your guide to the life of the Big Year birding experience. Late in the year 2011 which seems like a lifetime ago, I saw a little movie called, oddly, or not surprisingly, The Big Ear. I did note that one of my favorite actors, Steve Martin, was starring in it. I was also a fan of Jack Black and remembered him from way back when I saw High Fidelity. And who doesn't love Owen Wilson? Arnold! No, everybody does. You love him. Okay. So I told Sue that I'd like to see it and... From the previews, I just thought it was like another buddy movie. Sue didn't let on that it was actually about birding, or I may not have gone. But we did go, and by the time the protagonists got to the island of Attu, I was so drawn into the prospect of big years that I could see myself doing that. Keep in mind, at the time, I was not a birder and had only ever used binoculars at the racetrack. When during the credits, they showed all of the birds Owen Wilson's character had seen with a guster song, This could all be yours someday. I was pretty much hooked. I had remembered that Sue had the book The Big Year by Mark Obmasek from the library, and I really hadn't given it a second thought. Now I had to read the book. Well, listen to the audiobook. I love audiobooks. Even while listening to the book, I was secretly planning a big year. Not a full-out ABA plus ATU version, but a smaller big year birding wherever I traveled across North America. I had a full-time job that took up the majority of my year and my days, but what could it hurt to do a little birding along the way and maybe see, oh, I don't know, 300 or so species as I learned how to bird and what it took to become a birder. The trouble was, I really didn't acknowledge it at the time. I was suffering, or perhaps gifted with, obsessive compulsive disorder. On a January trip to California, a guide said that if I really wanted to do a big year, I had to go to Arizona, the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, and Alaska. How could I possibly do that while working full-time and I really had zero spare dollars in my bank account? Well, it turns out if you are obsessive and determined enough, you can make a good stab at it. At the end of the year, I was thousands of dollars in debt, but had seen 600 species Last year, I completed a Canada big year. According to eBird, I finished one short of the all-time record, but they don't include the Indian peafowl that live and breed in Victoria, British Columbia. And if that darn limpkin had just flown far enough across the Niagara River into Canadian airspace, I'd have counted 458 species for my Canada big year and would have had the all-time record. Woe is me. But ifs and buts, as my mother used to say. However, in Ontario in 2022, one young man did break a record. Kaya Jasper, at the age of just 20, I'm 63, so yeah, just 20, broke the all-time record for an Ontario big year. He traveled thousands of miles, sometimes in terrible weather, and on roads no birder had ever been to in the farther northern regions of Ontario, which put it 
into perspective as a larger area than Texas. When it was all said and done, Kaya had seen 359 species, blowing by the previous record of 343 species set in 2017. So, it's not a coincidence that Kaya is the final guest on my five-part series on the birders of the Ontario 2022 big year. But first, an apology. This episode was recorded back in early 2023 and was one of the first I recorded before I had my proper recording set up. Totally my fault. In fact, I should have been sacked right on the spot for failing to make my podcast sound better early on. But I have persevered. I thank you in advance for your understanding. Well, how else can I thank you since I am saying this before even finishing the final edit? Well, once again, as you see, the OCD and ADHD have reared its ugly head and have caused me to go on and on and on. So in addition to the apology for the sound recording, now I have to apologize for the length of this introduction and promise to make the summary at the end just as long. I mean, just as, I mean, just a much, much shorter. Yes shorter. Thank you, and I hope you have enjoyed today's episode. It was great to talk to Kai. Oh, what? Sorry. Sue says I haven't actually played the interview. Never mind. So, in addition to my apology for the sound and the long-winded introduction, I'm sorry that I almost forgot to play the actual interview. With that said, I will bid you adieu and will be back in about 30 minutes. Please enjoy. Well, I have to thank you very much for trying to do this again. I will hopefully, this will be the very, very last time. Otherwise, I'm just going to drive right up to the Bruce Peninsula and all you need to do is get a Northern Weeder up there. And <laughs> uh, I guess we didn't get one of those during the Ontario big year. Yeah, it was too bad. The year before 2021 was really good for them. Yeah. I had one like an hour from my house here and there's like four in Southern Ontario, but they're kind of weird like that. Let's get into it and talk about, first of all, when you got into the big year, it wasn't just by yourself. You had three or four other people that were either following you or competing with you. And for me, as I was traveling across Canada, it was fun to have that to look at from a distance because it was an interesting adventure just because I kept uh, looking at the Ontario eBird list just to see how the numbers were going back and forth. But at the end of the year, you ended up topping Ontario. I actually that year ended up topping Canada. Of course, my record was kind of short-lived because it's not even a record anymore, but you still have the record. And what was that like for you, not only just doing a big year, but coming out on top and setting an all-time record, which I believe was 359? Uh, yeah, th 359. Oh, like it, it was so many things. It was tiring. It was thrilling. It was exciting. Definitely, it was an interesting aspect of it to have four people doing a serious big year. Mm -hmm. Like ride sharing was so much easier than doing it alone. Like trips to Northern Ontario in the winter, we, we were able to split that a few ways. Yeah, and it was so nice to be able to share driving and trip planning that way. As someone who did this all by myself, how much did that help you even break the record as opposed to just having the companionship and the ability to share rides and accommodations, I guess, too? Yeah, so it definitely helped out in that uh, aspect of it. I can't say the same for Ezra and William's experience, but for me, it was really a driving force near the end, like to keep birding strong because we were so close, like we were neck and neck. Mm -hmm. So it was like I have to be birding every day and looking for new species. I feel like I would have broken the record like if I was the only one doing a big year, but it definitely when I've got that high 
for example, there was a Bullock's Oriole in Kenora District in end of November. And to get that bird, I had to fly to Winnipeg and then drive back. So rent a vehicle, drive all the way back into Northern Ontario in the winter. And I'm going to be honest, honest, if I was the only one doing it, and if I already broke the record, mm-hmm. I might not have made that trip. So having a few people in there, like, okay, we're going to do it. I'm like, okay, I guess I have to do it too then. And how many of you flew uh, to Winnipeg? Uh, it was myself, William, Ezra, Susan Nagy, and her husband, Jim. Susan was also doing an Ontario Big Ear. Let's go back in time a little bit, though, because you were 19 or 20 when you started the Big Ear. Uh, I was 19. So how many years before becoming a big year birder were you serious about birding? So I've been into nature all my life. Birding, I started the Great Backyard Bird Count and Project Feeder Watch with my mom when I was about six or seven years old. And then the interest kind of dropped off for a while. Like, I still remember remember looking at ravens and chickadees in my yard every day. But it wasn't until I turned 14 and my neighbor bought me this tiny point-and-shoot camera that I started getting more into birds because I'd see everything and I'd want to take pictures of it. And then that, that led me to wanting to identify it. And I kind of, like, worked around the yard for a bit. And then I saw articles about snowy owls being seen all around my home county. And I'm like, wow, that's a really cool bird. So that was the first one that I actually like went out and made an effort to see. And then, yeah, that was 2016. I've been going out ever since. So I was into birding about seven years before my big year, seriously. What prompted you to do the big year? Was there one event? Uh, one of the things I talked to people about in the spring was their spark bird. And obviously, it sounds like the snowy owl was one of those that really got you more into it. But what was the decision-making process behind doing a big year at really the age of 19, where, as we know, lots of birders who have so much more experience would sometimes not even consider doing a big year? Yeah, it's funny. When I first heard of the concept of of the big year, it was in the summer of 2017, and I was at the OFO camp in Algonquin Park. Mm -hmm. It was the first year they did like their young birder camp, and that's where I met a lot of my current friends. But anyway, Jeremy Bensett was doing his Ontario Big Year that year, and he'd go on to break the record. And I remember following following along with all my friends and thinking, wow, that's crazy. I'd never do that. <laughs> I kind of got hooked on like the whole idea of Big Years. I started reading all the books I could find. Uh, Ken Kaufman's awesome one, Kingbird Highway. Mm-hmm. I must have read that two or three times in the next few years. Just like the story of some young teenager going out exploring North America by hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. It kind of had me hooked. And then slowly I started thinking of, hey, what if I go out and do a big year in Ontario? And it was kind of at the back of my mind for a while. And then I figured out that after high school, I'd have a year free. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it. <laughs> because I think that's what every 19-year-old wants to do, right? Spend a year looking at birds. Yes. I think every 19-year-old wants to take a trip to Italy and think he met the love of his life and then have his heart broken. <laughs> that, I think that's the 19-year-old typically thinks. But then again, I wasn't a typical 19-year-old. And it's kind of nice that not everyone is a typical 19-year-old. Although more and more, I think as I meet more and more young birders, traveling for the summer or taking your off to bird is becoming more and more common. Yeah, it's nice to see that way. And you just know so many young birders, even kids that are 10, 11 years old that are kind of fans of yours, which must be nice to have a little bit of a a fan base uh, for your birding adventures. Yeah, it was definitely cool during the big year having people following along. Uh, Mm. I kept tried to keep a blog up to date. 
mm-hmm. update weekly if I could. Yeah. Uh, support and feedback from that was really helping out. Yeah, the the social media must have been a driver of not just information, but inspiration as well. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that we got really lucky with during our big years. Mm-hmm. Because that long ago that Jeremy did his, right? Mm-hmm. It was only 2017. And when he did his, there's like still birding listservs. Like people are finding out about rare birds through e- email forums and some mm-hmm. sometimes Facebook groups. And now we just have a provincial Discord server with thousands of birders. And when a rarity is found, it's posted there with the lo- exact location within seconds. Mm-hmm. So like it just makes chasing so much easier than, than it ever was before. Of course, when you're in Vancouver and a marsh sandpiper shows up in Ontario, your brain goes into overdrive as to how you're going to get back on time. I remember being just in agony because it's four hour flight plus the drive home plus the drive to the bird thinking there's no way I was going to get it. That was probably, I think, one of the rarest birds of the year. And what was your story about getting that bird? Yeah, that was definitely the rarest bird for me as well. I was at Point Pelee during the evening evening that it was found. And when I got the text from James Holdsworth, I think, yeah, it had been just under two hours away. And I think sunset was three hours away. I was definitely stressing a bit. And I definitely don't want to endorse speeding, but I may or may not have broken a few traffic laws on the way <laughs> to get there. I'm sure I did on occasion too, and that is one of those little things that we won't speak about in terms of actual miles per hour or kilometers per hour. But yeah, sometimes you just want to get to a bird. And I ended up getting to the Mars Sandpiper on time. Unfortunately, it was late in the afternoon, the second day, and it was pouring rain. And, you know, you could see it if it stood still for about two seconds and sometimes in flight, but I eventually got a digiscope video that looked more like a sonogram of a baby. So it wasn't the best. Did you get there early enough with enough sunshine to get some pictures that were useful for you? Yeah, I was really glad that you were able to get it though, because when we saw it, it was just before sunset. Mm-hmm. And then we saw it take off with a flock of yellow legs, circle very high up and disappear to the northwest. And we're like, that bird's gone. It's it's not coming back. And then we left that evening and it was still gone. Mm -hmm. And then sure enough, it came back the next morning. Were other birders who were doing the big ear able to benefit from it coming back or did everyone get to see it that night? Uh, For the Ontario folks, we all got that evening. Luckily. Were you all at Point Pelee or were you all scattered about? Uh, me, Ezra, and William were all at Point Pelee. So we were lucky and were able to get it. Now, speaking of Point Pelee, I was going to ask you about some of the places that you got to visit because of the big year and some of the places that you were looking forward to the most. Where does Point Pelee fit in the scheme of things? Was that a place you birded every spring like many of us or was that a spring trip to Point Pelee a new thing for you? Yeah, it's pretty funny. I went into the big year only having been to Point Pelee once. I know a lot of Ontario birders go for like a few weeks if they can in May. Mm-hmm. But I'd never been there in the spring before. So that was a really exciting experience going for the first time in the big year. I think everyone who does a big year, whether it's uh, Ontario or Canada or even ABA big years, Point Pelee has always been a destination. This past year, 2022, was probably one of the best I can remember for rare birds in Point Pelee. Yeah, it was phenomenal. And it's interesting, a lot of the birds, like the warblers and the tanagers, often show up first week of May. And I got, I think, 40-something year birds on April 24th. 
we had this amazing warm front and we had over a hundred species just like around the tip area that morning. And I was getting black, like all, almost all my warblers, summer mm. tanager, dixis on that one day. So like that was like nothing I've seen before in terms of like reverse migration off the tip. Mm-hmm. It was just like a, it was a spectacle being, being there. What were some of the best birds that you got at Point Pelee? Oh, there's so many, Rob. Like, there's so many highlights. A few for me, Mississippi kite off the tower at the tip. A few of my favorite self-found birds were little blue heron, blue grosbeak, and summer tanger flying off the tip. Mm-hmm. We had a larkspur on April. Then, of course, for many of us, the highlight was a bell's fury. Oh. Yeah, that was a great one. Like 200 birders crowded <laughs> crowded along the beach. Yes, that was a bird that I could even imagine. There was a couple other birds that were rumored, like a plumbius vario, but uh, I don't think anyone saw that one. Yeah, I don't think so. But I mean, that's always the case during a big year, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's always a few birds that are seen by one person, and then they get away. Now, speaking of rarities, one of the rarest birds I got during the course of the year was in Long Point in the spring. And I was there for a reported lark sparrow. And that one was as good a bird as I was expecting that day. But I was staring at the the hedgerow trying to get a picture of the lark sparrow. And a bird just hopped out of the bushes. And for five or 10 seconds, I wasn't sure what the heck I was looking at. And then Lev Frid, Frid behind me says, it's a Eurasian tree sparrow. And I'm like, yes, that, I, I wish I had said that first. And I knew a lot of you guys were heading down when the tree sparrow showed up. Yeah, it was I, funny. I was at Long Point a few days before that for the lark sparrow. It would have been convenient if the tree sparrow was there at the time too. Yeah, so I was there for the lark sparrow. Then I came home to Bruce County and I went for a drive with my mom because there was a yellow-throated warbler that had been seen in Guelph. And I'm like, oh, why don't we just go look for that? It's only a few hours away. We get there, get the warbler, and then I see the news about the tree sparrows. I'm like, yeah, mom. So I said this was only going to be a few-hour <laughs> drive, but now we're going all the way to Long Point. So race down there, and after about an hour of searching, found it at the old cut feeders. Yeah, that's a really exciting one. My first encounter with a Eurasian tree sparrow was in 2012, and I went to its original location in St. Louis. And there's a gentleman bought a house and he didn't understand what these weird looking sparrows were that were coming to his feeders. And he became the prince of the Eurasian tree sparrow with every single birder that ever did a big year up until they started spreading out a bit would go to to see that bird and he had a a log book on his porch and he would have everybody who came sign the book and i don't think anything can top being on that guy's porch sharing all his stories of birders that had come through to see the bird but at the beginning of the year you had to go up north and you had to get some northern specialties and there must have been some interesting drives and interesting birds that you got way up north and I'm interested in how far north you guys ended up getting and how many trips you did together and if you did any of those trips by yourself. Yeah so we did two main trips during the winter. The first one was early January. After a few days of cleaning up all the rarities around southern Ontario I left with William and Ezra and we chased a spod tilly at Thunder Bay and then we chased a varied thrush in northeastern Ontario and yeah yeah, without a doubt, the Toei was the worst driving we had to go through for a bird all year. After midnight on the north shore of Lake Superior, and we were driving through a blizzard. <laughs> and the, as we were driving at the time, I think the visibility was like 
20 or 30 meters ahead of us. It was so bad. Transport trucks in the ditch, like just completely impossible to see. And in the middle of that, we had this tiny like Mitsubishi car pass us doing like 80 kilometers an hour and disappear into the whiteout. So yeah, that, that was pretty intense. <laughs> that was intense. And then the other big trip of the winter was in February. I went with Nathan Hood, Ezra, and Jeff Skevington. We were birding for, with a few other friends around Smooth Rock Falls and Timmins, which is pretty far north. And then after that, we decided to take a chance and drive on the winter ice road called the Weedham Road, which runs from Smooth Rock Falls up to Moosney and then further to Attawapiskat. Yeah. And this is a road that's only really been functioning for about four or five years. And no birders ever really tried to do it in the winter. That's kind of a new thing. <laughs> And we thought if we went, we might have a chance of seeing Willow Term again. But we were really rolling our dice on that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that was minus 45 winter camping, which camping, was a bit more not, than we were hoping for. Not finding a heated hotel or bed and breakfast. This is camping like in tents on the side of the road? or Yeah, exactly. We were in tents. Uh, it was just kind of unfortunate timing because COVID was kind of ramping up for the winter then. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to take a chance and infect someone in one of the northern communities. They were already dealing with a few outbreaks, so we right. wanted to be cautious. And yeah, we had the tents and we were camping at these little pull-offs <clears throat> beside the ice road. And we were thinking maybe if we're unlucky, it'll be like mid-minus 30s. Mm -hmm. Even though it's that far north, James Bay kind of has like a moderating effect. So it's normally like warmer than it is by Timmins. Mm -hmm. Well, we got really unlucky, and there's a cold <laughs> front then. And when you know, there's minus 45 the one night. I had a minus 50 sleeping bag, mm -hmm. and it was wrapped inside of two minus 20s. So does that make it? And I was hoping they'll yeah. make it like a minus 90 or <laughs> yeah. so, but it did not. <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night with my nostrils kind of freezing shut, and my hands were just so cold. So yeah, definitely one of the most miserable experiences of the year. Before the year started, got myself some heated mittens and these Baffin Island boots that say they're rated till minus 40 Celsius. And I was lucky that I did not have cold feet all winter. I don't know if you had just the same luck. Yeah, I bought some boots going up for that trip, and they said raid to minus 45, but I think that's just what they write on them to sell them to people in southern Ontario. Like, <laughs> my feet were cold for most of the trip. And, like, we saw a lot of good birds up there. We saw over 20 northern hawk owls, a great gray. Hoary red poles were com quite common. Four days into the trip, and we hadn't seen any willow termigans. And we were about to head back and turn around for the night. And then we just went to chant into this local outside on the highway at Wapiskat. And he said, oh, if you're looking for those birds, why don't you take this remote road out to the coast? And it's a road that we never would have heard of otherwise. So we drove out, went for like a two-hour snowshoe. And wouldn't you know it, we started finding billow termigan tracks in the snow. About another half hour of frantic searching and... We found four willow termigans just sunning themselves on the snow. Got to watch them for a few seconds before they took off. And like, what a relief that was after spending so long on that trip freezing, waiting for one bird that we weren't even sure we were going to get. And the other birds that you did get, were they birds that made it worth the trip that you wouldn't have got anywhere else? Yeah, going up for that trip, we already cleaned up the rest of our northern specialties. So I already had hawk owl and great gray, but I only saw two great grays all year. One being on the winter road, one being farther south. So yeah, willow termigan was the only species that was new for the year up there. But just seeing that 
habitat in the winter in a place that like hardly any, any birders have ever seen mm-hmm. that just made it worth not worth it on its own plus we had like gorgeous northern lights the one evening because of the way i had to schedule my trips i did not get anywhere where i saw northern lights so that is definitely something that i'm going to want to do in the future so you had a pretty good list by the time spring migration was over uh, what were you at and how close were you to the record yeah so in mid-june i kind of finished up the spring season by doing a trip to rainy river adding stuff like western millark marbled godwit and constable when i returned from that trip i was at 332 so not quite the record but almost there after may you know, i was pretty confident that i was going to break the record it was just like an idea of by how much. Mm-hmm. And around that point, one thing I noticed following from afar the eBird list was that there was a point where William really wasn't, Ezra was there, but William really wasn't on the radar, so to speak. And it seemed like he sort of came out of nowhere. It did that suddenly concern you as far as winning the big year? Kind of depended on what it was. Like earlier in the spring, it was a pretty big gap. William missed a lot of stuff that as we saw earlier like very fresh and a few others and slowly but surely in the fall we started picking those back up and you know, i felt like i had enough of a lead that i was likely going to have the record but as you can know anything can happen so mm-hmm. like i definitely wasn't sure until the clock hit mid-november 31st he ended up tying with ezra with a juror falcon on amherst island which was really impressive because yeah originally he wasn't going it out like to set the record or anything but once he decided to do that in the spring he really did a good job of it and he was in school for over half the year too yeah i remember him telling me that which was an even more impressive feat and did he and ezra keep you going in december even though you had a record were they sort of pushing you on to get to the top at the end of the year oh yeah like even going into it, my idea was even if I break the record, I want to like I wanted to see as many species as, as I possibly could. Like I felt like I'd be disappointed looking back on it if I broke the record by one or two and then stopped and gave up. Mm-hmm. But as you know, I'm sure it's definitely hard to keep motivation going in November and December when mm-hmm. the list of possible new birds is waning and you're getting tired from the whole thing. So having competitors and friends keeping me going was definitely a big part of motivating me to get out daily. That- was the same for me in December because people were asking, are you going to try and break the record? And I was like, you know, well, I'll reevaluate when I hit 400. And at that point, when you get to 400, you think no matter how tired you are, no matter how much money you've spent, you think, when am I ever going to be at this number again? And of course, then I got to 450 and I thought I could relax at that point. But I thought, well, I've gone through all this for 11 months. I don't think I want to stop. And yeah, that is the reason I kept going and took one last trip to the East Coast and ended up getting a green-tailed towhee, which is a bird that I wasn't expecting to be told was there when I got to Nova Scotia. And then I was able to just drive an hour and a half and get a green-tailed towhee. So that was, you know, so sometimes you make a trip for one bird and you end up getting something that you never expected. Did you have any of those trips where you went for specific birds, but something else that made it worthwhile showed up? Uh, There's a few like that. The most noteworthy, though, is one where I went on a trip for no birds and I ended up getting one. Oh. So that was in late May back home in Bruce County. And Ezra and myself were leading a hike for the Huron Fringe Birding Festival. Mm -hmm. And this was during peak 
time in May. And I was kind of nervous about it, honestly, because like I have to be away for a whole day. I'm leading a hike, so if something rare sh- shows up, I won't be able to chase it. So I was sure I was going to miss something that day. I'm checking the alerts as we're driving between stops. Nothing's showing up, luckily. And then we took a lunch break midway up to Bruce, and I noticed a few raptors going overhead. So I'm like, okay, let's hawk watch here for a minute. We got broad wings and turkey vultures. And then I saw a long-winged beautio. I hadn't seen before. And it was a Swainson's hawk. Oh, wow. No, that was the only Swainson's hawk I got during the entire year. But that's just one like completely unexpected. I'm not there to look for it. And it just like, I guess luck smiled on me and it just flew across mm-hmm. my path. When you get a bird like that, does that make you think, hey, I've just got an extra day now somewhere down the line? Yeah, it's always like relieving getting a tough bird out of the way. Like something like Arctic Turn in Ottawa that you know if you get, you won't have to spend an extra week hunting around for. Were there birds that you did spend a week off and on going back and forth to get? Yeah, so the most annoying bird of the year was the Townsend's Warbler. That that one showed up in Rondo in October. And when it was found, I was in Guelph. So really not, not that far away, only about a two-hour drive. It was frequenting a bird bath. So I thought, okay, it's likely enough to be around. Drove down. Spent the entire day, missed it. The next morning, I was back with William. We spent the entire day in the backyard, missed it again. The following day, I'm like, okay, it's probably gone. I'm going to go do a lake watch at Pinery in Lambton County. And that way, if it shows up, I'm I'm an hour away. (laughs) Well, that morning, Ezra went near dawn. He saw it. I drove there, spent the entire day, and oh, missed no. it. Yeah, and at that point, he was fairly close to me, so I was a bit a bit concerned. <laughs> After that, a, a cold front hit, and all the birds cleared out Rondo. Nothing left. And I'm like, well, shit, <laughs> the bird's gone. So I went home to Bruce for Thanksgiving weekend. It was like rainy, trashy weather. I'm like, nothing will show up. But wouldn't you know it, that Townsend Swarpler is back at Rondo when I was like six hours away. Drove all the way back down. On my way down, I stopped for a cattle grid. It was basically on the way. It took five minutes. <laughs> I get to Rondo, and they said, you missed the Townsend's Warbler by five minutes. So I'm freaking out at that point. But so I'm surprised you still have hair. <laughs> yeah, luckily, after all that, I, I did end up seeing it. But yeah, that, that was definitely the bird that took the most trust. During the middle of the year, gas prices seemed to go out of control. And I'm assuming you had a budget to begin with. And... And what changed because of gas prices, especially when you're talking about doing multiple trips for one bird, how did that affect your decision-making process? Or was it an amount of money that you had that you knew you could spend? Yeah, so I saved up a lot before the big year working a few jobs. And yeah, the gas prices certainly hurt my budget. I, I realized in May that I should probably save up a bit more to make it through the rest of the year comfortably. So during the summer, I worked three different jobs almost every day through June, July, and August trying to make back funds. Mm-hmm. And somehow that didn't cost me a bird. I remember the one time I was working 11 days straight McGregor Provincial Park as a park naturalist. Mm-hmm. And on day 12, a glossy ibis showed up and I was able to get it. Just like luck happens mm-hmm. like so often like in ways like that. Like if that bird showed up any other time, I could not leave because of work. But, but it just happens to show up, up on the one day I had off. But yeah, after that, uh, gas prices luckily didn't go up too much. So I was able to get by the rest of the year. My... Glossy Ibis and Ruff were two birds that I was frustrated about because I kept hearing about birds like that while I was in different parts of the country and had no ability to come back for. And it was just lucky that 
in the fall, a rough showed up and I went and got that in the pouring rain and I'm driving back to Brantford from Pickering and or Oshawa, I guess. And I'm probably 20 minutes from home at five o'clock when someone finds a glossy ibis in literally the same 100 or 200 meters worth of park. And I was stressing over the decision, but I decided I'd go home and then go back first thing in the morning because it was pouring rain at that point. I had stood in the rain all day long for the rough. And luckily, it was a beautiful sunny day the next day, and I did get the glossy ibis. So those were two birds. You know, when you think about the final number you end up at, and you think that one bird, that one bird, that one bird, you don't set a record if it isn't for those one birds. And a lot of people say, why are you doing that? It's only one bird. But you can understand how one bird is going to make the difference. There were two one birds that won the year for you. Yeah, I had so many like that. Honestly, I find birding crazy sometimes. Like, just the fact that you can chase a small bird, like, say, a warbler. You can chase that across the province and somehow still, like, it's still there when you get there and you still manage to see it. Like, there really is so so much luck involved Mm -hmm. for stuff like that. But yeah, the one birds definitely add up over time. What was the one bird that you weren't lucky with that might have been the more, one of the more disappointing misses of the year? Yeah, so I got pretty lucky with birds, honestly, like for rarities. I didn't miss too many. One bird that I did miss that I was disappointed about was Western Kingbird. Uh, Susan Nagy saw two, I believe. They did an OFO trip in June up to Rainy River. And when I went up a few weeks later, I wasn't, I couldn't find any. So that, that was like the most common bird I missed. And it's one that I probably could have got during like a better year for them. Some years they breed in Rainy River, some years they don't. See, and I didn't even need to see a Western Kingbird in Ontario. And I was, I believe it was at Rondeau and one had been seen during the morning flight. And I decided to go and just see if I could see it just because who knew what else I might see while I was there. And I ended up seeing it. I'm not sure if it was you or Ezra that was racing down to the park to look for it too. Yeah, that was me that day. Okay. It's funny, I almost did morning flight at Rondo that day, but I decided to try it instead at Point Keeley. So just like all those decisions work out, like some work in your favor, some don't. Overall, I'm not too upset. I didn't miss too much, honestly. Like I got really lucky. And there's always going to be the ones that get away. Another one was Smith's Longspur, okay. which breed every year on the coast of Hudson Bay in Northern Ontario. Not just one like, the limiting factor is money. Like it's a four grand trip for one bird. Mm-hmm. And so like, I just couldn't stomach that one. So the, it's one that I easily could have had, but mm-hmm. funds helped me back. What was the most expensive bird that you did go for? The most expensive definitely would have been that Bullock's Oriole mm-hmm. in November. It was a plane flight mm-hmm. and then gas across the Winnipeg. Luckily, uh, Susan and Jim Nagy were very kind and they paid for the rental car. And that was another way of like birders helping me out along the year. There was so much of that, like people offering to pay for car rides or letting me stay for free at their house. Mm-hmm. Like the birding community is so generous and welcoming and like definitely could have done the big year without that. It's a competition, yet it's a competition that your closest opponent will take the time to get you a bird, even if it means they lose the competition to you. And I don't think there's anything else that could be called a competition that any opponent would ever help their competitor if they were going to lose. Yeah, it's really interesting, like that birding. Like I spent days helping William and Ezra look for Jeer Falcon, because that's mm-hmm. one I, I had originally 
Mm-hmm. So I got that 10 minutes from my house in January. And the other guys didn't get it until late December. But I spent a lot of time trying to help them find in Bruce County. But yeah, like birding is like big year competitions are interesting. Like you're really just competing against yourself. And the other people may like nudge you on sometimes. But yeah, it's more against yourself and just seeing what happens. Well, it was an exciting year for so many birders last year. And for me, in addition to the marsh sandpiper, the one bird that I relied on all of you for was the cave swallow. And William was telling me that I was thinking that, wow, if it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't have got cave swallow. But uh, he was saying there was another birder that was following the winds and the flights and told you guys where you had to be on a certain day at a certain time to see them. Yeah, so that's something I was studying a lot going into the big year. Like, I didn't really do chasing or anything like that previous to 2022. I was really into, like, weather patterns and birding and how it all fit together. So I was trying to, like, figure out which systems were good for birds and how I could capitalize that for the big year. I was talking a lot with Brandon Holden, who's kind of like the Ontario birding weather guru. He knows (laughs) everything about that stuff. I never knew there was a website called winds.com until last year. Yeah, it's really handy. So yeah, I was following that system up off the Gulf Coast. It was low pressure, strong south winds for days off the Gulf Coast, which in November means cave swallows. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a really good feeling they were going to show up in Ontario. And I was going to try somewhere in like Lake Ontario to look for them. So that's where the winds were hitting. And Brandon recommended 50 Point in Niagara region. So I drove down there, waited all morning. And then the other guys were watching the lake. And I thought I'd scan back towards the parking lot since I thought the birds would be coming from inland. And sure enough, 40 swallow stared overhead and then we ran inland and we got more and more and that was just so exciting like hoping for a bird following weather trying to predict it and then like actually seeing it that to me was one of the the most fun days that i had because everyone was there i thought by the time i got there that I wasn't going to see any and because they hadn't been seen like in an hour and then a few more did show up and but I wasn't able to get a picture, so I came back the very next morning, and there were more cave swallows, and I got some record photos, and yeah, that's another, just one more bird that I would have been very disappointed if I didn't get. Well, I have to congratulate you on a an amazing big year in 2022. The drive to, for me anyway, to keep doing it is sometimes a little too intense. Is that something you'll ever decide to do again or maybe a different region maybe canada i'll be a while in the future though like it's recent enough in my memory like it was really it was such an adventure and i'm so glad i did it mm-hmm. like at the same time it was it was very draining and tiring but also so exhilarating so much fun birding every day of the year mm-hmm. traveling to regions of the province i'd never been so yeah i consider doing it in the future but not for a while anyways what's your next thing i know we uh, ran into each other at the huron fringe i went there for my first trip ever because uh, you mentioned that you had done it what's coming up next year for you yeah i just got back from a month-long trip seeing western canada for the first time which is pretty exciting and now i'm working with my girlfriend alessandra we're starting up our own guiding company for next year oh excellent so it's going to be pretty exciting thank you so much for taking the time out to do this and good luck with everything you do in the future yeah thanks rob it was nice being on the podcast again again and again all right take care bye-bye Once again, I'd like to thank not just Kaya, but Susan, Andy, William, and Ezra, the Ontario Big Five, 
for joining me on this look back at the 2022 Ontario Big Year. These young, knowledgeable, and determined birders chase not just birds, but birding dreams. Spending a year traveling to the four corners, are there four corners? of the province the size of Ontario was a daunting task and at the end of the year where they finished was less important than the adventure they lived and the friends they made along the way. Not to mention the amazing places they got to visit during the course of the year. Ontario was definitely theirs to discover. Coming up later this year, I will be talking to a couple of other birders who have done Ontario big years. But later this month, we will be returning to the ABA area and getting to know Tiffany Kirsten, who set the record for a lower 48 big year. Her accomplishment was nothing short of amazing, seeing 726 species in the continental U.S. on a limited budget and facing a turning point in her life. Her story is both fascinating and inspiring. Join me in a couple of weeks for episode 12 of the Big Year Podcast. As always, I will look forward to having the opportunity to share with you why I have such a passion for this crazy pastime. Birding can truly be a transforming experience. Until then, as always... May the birds be with you.